Good morning, good morning. <clears throat> You're welcome to grab a seat. Well, welcome to Bethany, West Seattle. I, for those of you that don't know me or if we've never met, my name is Prentice, uh, and uh, I have the privilege to be uh, to pastor this church and with the wonderful staff and volunteers. And so, uh, we're so glad that you are here uh, this morning on this beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, as uh, Ashley, uh, one of our pastors, says, uh, starting Easter, our service will be at 9:30. Uh, that doesn't mean 9:35. Uh, or 9.40, or right before the sermon. Uh, it means 9.30, and I hope that you can join us and we're at that time to, to collectively uh, worship together. And so, uh, this morning I'm a little tired, so you might have to bear with me. I went on a Young Life Leaders uh, retreat. I just got back last night. Uh, and though they were all leaders, uh, they are all still like college kids and college age, and so... Uh, a lot of energy and loves to stay up all night and play games. Uh, and if you know something about me, the, a lot of the guys here do that during the men's retreat. I'm the guy that finds a closet to sleep in by myself because I love my alone time. Uh, so I didn't get much of that, but it was an awesome time there. They're still there. Dom, who's the area director who goes here, is still there. And so uh, pray for him and pray for uh, everybody else there. So. Uh, today's uh, scripture, as we continue this series called Seasons, and we talk about seasons a lot because the idea of Lent uh, literally means the springtime, the spring season, uh, and it's this time of preparing ourselves for the resurrection. Uh, and, and as Ashley was teaching the children, I hope that was a teaching moment for us, that during this moment of Lent, that uh, it's about stop and listening and waiting in believing and expecting God to do something different in our lives. Uh, and so with that said, our text this morning uh, comes from John uh, chapter, two, uh, ver- or chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Uh, and this is a very well-known verse. It's about a miracle that Jesus does. And, and I just want to say this, that uh, it's this miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. And so we're going to be talking a lot about that. And it, but I recognize something that especially in a congregation this size, uh, and I know particular people that have had to navigate through uh, the, the idea of addiction and wine and alcohol. And so though we might be talking about that, uh, I hope that we can all hear the heart of what uh, John, the evangelist, is saying Uh, about this idea of wine and grape in the first century and what that reflects and what that represents. So so with that said, let's let's try to hear the words and the heart of of the scripture uh, in this time. And for those of you that have wrestled with addiction, I'm sorry. I'll I'll continue to be with you and pray with you and and just to be with you even in this sermon as we talk about it. Uh, And so the text says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus' response, woman, why do you involve me? We'll talk about that. Uh, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Nearby stood six stone, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, uh, each holding uh, from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Uh, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So during this time, uh, during weddings, there was a master of banquets, uh, essentially the MC, the person who was kind of in charge of the party. So uh, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet, the MC, stated uh, or tasted the water uh, that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it, came, where it come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, so the bridegroom was the groom, uh, and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. So you can see what's happening. Uh, usually they bring out the good stuff, uh, and then as people start to drink a little bit more and, and have a, uh, a more liberal or a wider uh, taste palette, they would bring out some of the cheaper stuff. Uh, but you, you do something different. You have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, again, wants to make sure that they know that this is Cana. Okay, we'll talk about that. Uh, was the first, the first of the signs through which he believed his glory, was re- uh, revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. <clears throat> let's pray and uh, let's see what God has to say. God, thank you. You've given us uh, your word to, to unpack and to listen and to hear what you might have to say. God, in the midst of this, may we listen for you. May we uh, just seek you in your kingdom first, knowing that everything else will be added unto that. So thank you for your word. Thank you that it gives us joy. It gives us hope. It gives us healing and transformation. Uh, and many of us, if we're being really honest, we just need that. And so we pray for it. In your name we pray. Amen. So John talks about this idea of signs. There are several signs. This is the first sign uh, that Jesus does to reveal God's glory. And and if you uh, understand or come across any signs in our lives, you know a little something about signs. We see signs every single day. Stop signs. Green light signs. We see warning signs. We see uh, signs that uh, other people give you, like verbal cues and nonverbal cues and warnings and open and close. And all these signs are all over our lives. We see signs everywhere when we drive, when we walk, when we go into stores. Well, uh, we see signs. It's, it's a daily part of our lives. We also see signs, again, from other people. I remember uh, when Maria, my, my fiance, uh, now we, when we ver- first started uh, hanging out, we would go, I guess there would be dates you know, or hangout sessions or whatever. It was like some ambiguous times where we would just hang out and we would uh, get dinner, we'd go for walks, I helped her move, which is, you know, I don't just do that for everyone, so... I helped her move, and I brought her into this sacred place called my gym, and we worked out together, which for those of you that know me, is a big step, okay? So here we are, we're hanging out, and after, and finally, a long, agonizing, patiently awaited time of two whole weeks, I braved myself, and I asked, so are we boyfriend and girlfriend yet? 
just like that. And her response quite immediately was, no. And so I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. I was reflecting on all the things that we have done. I felt like I was reading the signs correctly. I was like, we, we worked out together. What bigger sign is there than working out together that we would finally be boyfriend and girlfriend? Exactly. And she said, no. I was reading the signs, apparently very incorrectly. And I think about our own lives, and as we go, we see signs everywhere, all these signs that we read correctly, but also that signs that lead us into wrong directions. And in this text, when we talk about signs, we'll see that the signs that Jesus does through his miracles uh, points people to his divinity and being empowered by God the Father. And this morning, it's all about the sign of joy, of joy, of choosing joy. And if you're anything like me, we're inundated with, with signs that lead us to joy, but these are the wrong signs. We follow the wrong signs in pursuit of joy. And we see these kind of signs every day, again, in our lives. If you want joy, you must fill in the blank. <clears throat> if you want joy, the sign of joy is you need to make this much money or have these things. The sign of joy uh, is to be married or to be, in a, to be in a relationship or to have these types of friendships. The sign of joy uh, is to look a certain way, dress a certain way, weigh a certain number, be a certain size, whatever it is. These are uh, what the world tells us, signs towards the pathway to joy. If you want joy, you must keep up with all your friends on social media. That is a sign that you have achieved joy. Or this certain title at your work. Or letters after your name. And what we'll see is that true joy, true authentic joy comes in and through and only in and through the person of Jesus who brings death to life, who is unchanging, constant, and eternal. This is the source of joy. This is why there is a big difference between happiness and joy. Jesus calls us to pursue joy, never happiness, because happiness is a variable. Happiness is contingent upon these signs coming to fruition. So if you want to be happy, we follow these signs to more money, more fame, more status, more relationship, whatever it is. And the moment that goes sour or goes down or the moment it's not enough, your happiness changes into unhappiness, into discontentment, into, into sadness or pain or whatever it is. Because oftentimes we pursue a happiness which is a variable. It changes over time. And yet when we put our hope and our joy in something that is constant, unmoving, eternal, which is God through the person of Jesus, we get joy. And the uniqueness and the, and the, the amazing part of joy is that joy can coexist with lament and mourning and grief. Joy can be in the midst of all that. It's an upside-down paradigm that I believe comes in and through knowing who Christ is. And so our call is not towards happiness. It's not towards happiness. It's following the sign towards joy, and that sign towards joy is the cross. 
It's a cross. And so this morning, as we continue talking about joy and wine and wedding, there's a couple things I want to make sure we do before we leave, and it's this. I want to answer the question, what is the story underneath the story? What is this story of the wedding? Why, why is the very first sign uh, a sign in the context of a wedding? And, and why is wine such a big deal? And secondly, what is the significance of this sign? What is this telling us about our own lives? What is the significance of it? So two things. What is the story underneath the story? What is the significance of the sign? And so we'll start with that. What is the story underneath the story? So John 2 uh, says that this is the first sign. Okay, so when we read this text, it says that uh, this was the first sign. What we have to understand is this is the first sign uh, of seven. So there were seven signs uh, between chapters 1 through 12, which is referred to as the book of signs. Uh, and then John chapter 13 until the end is referred to the book of glory. So there's two things, book of signs, book of glory. Uh, and within the book of signs, there are seven signs. And the first one, then the fact that this is the first sign is very notable. And again, includes wine and includes wedding. So the first observation is this, weddings uh, were important Throughout the whole ancient Near East, because weddings, and sometimes we lose sight of a wedding, is especially in the context of, uh, of followers of Jesus, uh, but weddings during this time was so sacred and so holy because uh, the first thing they would think about when it comes to weddings is not just two people being in union, but it reflected the covenant and the promise that God had with God's own people. <clears throat> and so oftentimes, <coughs> especially throughout, <coughs> excuse me, the, throughout the New Testament, the church is considered the bride of Christ. Because when we look at the essence of a marriage, it's two people joining together to become one, to be in covenant uh, forever. And so weddings were very significant, especially in the first century, because it was, it was a reflection of God's promise to God's own people, and the promise of God's own people to God to be together, to be in union, to be committed to serve one another. So weddings were super, very, extremely important in the first century. And, and, and second, the actual wedding or the ceremony uh, was different from the way that we know of wedding ceremonies today. And so uh, this is something that I and Maria we're going through right now. We're trying to work out the details of our actual wedding ceremony. We're, we're, we're uh, thinking about the details, the, the food, the actual, you know, who's going to be in our wedding party, who's going to be the officiant, you know, what kind of music we're going to have, who's going to be our DJ. or All these things, we're thinking about that right now. Uh, and as excited as I am, we're thinking about this uh, for one particular event, right, for this actual ceremony that lasts, you know, two, three, four hours, I have no idea, but uh, a few hours. <laughs> and now, in the first century, it was, weddings were a bit different than that, uh, where uh, the way that we would see a wedding or a wedding ceremony, you know, it's a few hours. In the first century, a wedding ceremony would last an entire week. That was a Jewish tradition of when two people got married. And it looked very different because it wasn't an actual ceremony like we know today, you know, the, the wedding party and these vows and all these things. 
the two families would get together at the bride's house. They would exchange some paperwork, like a contract or a covenant, and sign it and agreed by both parties. And as soon as that was signed, they were married. Well, actually, it was step one towards marriage. Uh, the second part of the, the marriage to make it complete was the consummation. Um, and the similarities, though, that, had, that there were in the first century and today was that there was needed to be witnesses. Okay, so even today, when I do weddings, I, we have to have witnesses. Uh, in the first century, they may not have a ceremony. Uh, they have a signature and they have the consummation, and they also have witnesses. Okay, I thought that was weird. Maybe, like, for you guys, it's like, I don't know. Okay, no judgment here. So, uh, after the ceremony and after the consummation, there would be, like, a, a parade, a processional from the bride's house and their family to the groom's house. Uh, and the groom's house and the groom's family, they would be in charge of, essentially, the party. Uh, the feast is what they would call it, and that feast lasted for seven days. And the groom's side of the family, they were in charge of the wine. Not just the food, though they had specific foods, not just for the entertainment, but especially the wine. Because as we talked about during this time, wine always symbolized joy. And maybe some of you could resonate. Wine always symbolized joy all throughout uh, the New and Old Testament. We can see in Ecclesiastes, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with, joy, with a joyful heart. For God has already approved of what you do. And Psalms 104 says, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains the hearts. Lastly, in Amos this is when uh, they were in exile and God's going to restore all things. The prophet says, and I will bring my people, Israel, back from exile. They will, rebuild and, uh, they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. So the Jewish first century understanding uh, of wine was always a reflected and symbolized joy and blessing. This is all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. And so the idea <coughs> is that when there's this representation uh, of two people being in covenant and marry, marrying one another, it was a reflection of God's covenant to his people, and there was joy that undergirded that whole covenant towards one another between God and people and between the two individuals getting married. And so if you provided wine at the wedding party, at the feast, it was saying, I'm dispensing joy. This is to reflect God's blessing. This is to receive and to celebrate and to be joyful. This is what the party, the wedding party, the groom side was dispensing to others. And so if there was wine, there was joy. But the opposite was also true. If you ran out of wine, you essentially ran out of joy. Even in Jeremiah 48, it says, Joy and gladness are gone from the orchards and fields of Moab. I have stopped the flow of wine from the presses. No one treads them uh, with shouts of joy. No one. Although there, shout, although there are shouts, there are not shouts of joy. Talking about wine. No wine, no joy. No joy, no wine. So running out of wine... Uh, in this story that we just read, you can understand why there would be major shame upon the family, especially the groom side. 
There was so much shame when you ran out of wine particularly that the groom's family was liable and they could have been sued. This is ancient laws, that they could have been sued for not having enough wine. I went to a wedding not too long ago and they ran out of tacos. And I wish that this applied. Just kidding, although I do love tacos. So it's no wonder that Jesus' mother asked Jesus to do something in verse 3. Mary goes to Jesus and says, there's no more wine. We have to do something. And there's a couple things that we have to look into and say this. We have to be okay with being left with questions than answers. And as I was studying this, the first question that I had, and I still have, is this, why did Mary feel like she was responsible for this? Why did Mary go to Jesus and say, Jesus, or son, you know, that's awkward, Jesus, Savior, Messiah, and son, uh, this party ran out of wine. There is shame on this family. And and so the question I had was, what what was it about this family, this wedding, that Mary felt so responsible for and I don't know, and I still don't know. Many scholars, I, I, I believe that this could suggest Jesus' own wedding. Now, I don't think that there's anything in the scriptures that would support this. Uh, but all that to say is we don't really know why Mary was all up in their business and wanted to do something about it, but she did. And second, did, did Mary know that Jesus was God? And so, therefore... Is that why Mary went to God, Jesus and say, hey, you can do something, so will you do something? <clears throat> and again, I, I don't know the exact answer. The answer, the best answer that I've come across that I would land at is probably, question mark, because I don't know. But at the very least, she knew, Mary, that, that Jesus wasn't normal, okay, that her son wasn't normal. Remember the virgin birth? Remember the angels coming to her and talking to her about a son being the Messiah? So there's just some questions that are left a bit unanswered. But we have to understand this backdrop of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding and the significance of this backstory. Okay, wedding. God and people coming together in a covenant. And then with that union there's wine, a.k.a. there's, there's joy. <clears throat> and so what's the significance of this sign of joy? Uh, we read it in John chapter 2, the next verse in verse 4. It says, after Mary goes to Jesus, you've got to do something about this. Mary, or Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, I want us to be careful that we don't read this uh, first century ancient Near Eastern text through a 21st century Western modern eyes. And we do this a lot when we read scripture. Because uh, context is very crucial here. And I'd highly suggest uh, to never re- refer to a woman starting with woman. Can we agree with that? Like, like we know this, right? Even though it's technically in the Bible, we know not to do that. Uh, it's quite offensive and demeaning. But it wasn't the case, especially in this first century audience and readers and people. Uh, In this time, referring to someone as woman, a woman as a woman, referring to that person as a woman, uh, gyne is the Greek word. Gyne was a sign of honor, actually, and respect. 
And it was like calling or referring to a woman by uh, madam or, or ma'am. Like it was something very proper and, and respectful. Now, <coughs> obviously, <coughs> you and I, I don't think, would ever refer to your own mothers as madam or, or ma'am, right? Like it would be mom or whatever it is. Uh, so this was intentional. Though it was never disrespectful, like women, white, like it wasn't that rude, impolite, disrespectful way. It was in a very polite, uh, polite way, in a very respectful way, like madam or, or ma'am. And this was very intentional because although Jesus wasn't being rude, <coughs> he was certainly making a statement. This is a huge statement about Jesus making a, a distinction, a, a separation of where Jesus receives his authority, his power, and his ability to give and to change and do signs and miracles. It wasn't through uh, other people. It wasn't something he was born with via his, his mother. He was making a distinction to say that uh, though my hour, my death and resurrection, has not come yet, my authority and power come, comes from the true source, which is God, my heavenly Father. Not only his authority, but his timing was in and only through God, his Father, his heavenly Father. Jesus, from, the, from his, uh, his power, his authority, his timing, uh, his ability... To turn water into wine came only from his understanding and his knowing of empowerment of the Heavenly Father. So he was intentionally making that distinction by calling his mother ma'am. But it wasn't, it wasn't disrespectful. And so when Jesus turns water into wine, we have to kind of read in between the lines. And what Jesus was doing was he was turning water into wine. He was turning shame into joy. This was huge because there was a matter of shame within the families because they ran out of wine at this wedding feast. And so what Jesus does is comes in and, and through the power and the authority of God, turns shame into joy. And, and I would argue that the opposite of joy is actually not sadness. The opposite of joy is actually shame. And we see this from the very beginning of time through the person of Adam and Eve. And we've all experienced shame, too, because oftentimes joy and shame, they cannot coexist. And so the opposite of, of joy, I would argue, is not sadness, but it's shame. And so Jesus, through the power of the Heavenly Father, comes in and turns, turns shame into joy, turns darkness into light, turns in mourning into dancing, turns death to life, brokenness to restoration, sickness to healing, and many of us are in dying need for that this morning. Are you in need of joy? Are you broken? Are you sick? Are you experiencing this internal death in our souls that, and we just need life? And the story of this is that Jesus dispenses that joy, and not just some joy or a little bit of joy, but a lot of joy, a lot of joy, abundant joy, everlasting joy. 
And the source of joy is only in and through Jesus. And Mary knew that. His disciples probably knew that. And Jesus had uh, turned water into wine, 180 gallons, it says, around 180 gallons of wine. This means that there was overflowing enough wine for everybody. And, and the reason why the Bible, time and time, especially in this, per, in this pericope, this passage, talks about Cana, is because Cana was a very small, tiny little neighborhood. And so 180 gallons of wine was more than enough wine for the whole neighborhood. It wasn't talking about an entire metropolitan city or a big region. It was talking about this tiny little neighborhood called Cana. Uh, and says there was 180 gallons of wine provided. What Jesus is saying that Jesus is the provider through God and nobody and nothing else through Jesus' timing provides hope, everlasting hope, everlasting, unending, constant hope and joy that wine often represents in the first century. And that's good news for everybody. And, and, and I love it that intentionally it says, Turn this, uh, these water, stone water jars. See, what you have to understand is that these stone water jars were used for ceremonial cleansing and washings. Not to literally wash our hands so it's sanitary, but it's for rituals, for purity. And, and so these stone jars were pretty disgusting. You know, like people wash their hands in it, there's leftover water. Like it wasn't to actually clean their hands, it was for rituals. And so these dirty, you know, unsanitary, broken oftentimes uh, stone jars were used to dispense joy. Even in our brokenness, even in the, the secret part of our lives that are so dirty and so shameful, Jesus produces joy in our lives, in our sickness, when we feel like there's no hope, when we feel like we've hit the end of the road, especially in those precise moments in our brokenness and desperation, I need you to, to hear me say that Jesus offers you hope and a joy that is constant and everlasting that you can receive today no matter what you are going through. No matter what, God gives joy. And the sign that we must follow for this joy is not the sign of, of, of money, not the sign of status, not upper mobility, not relational status, but it's the cross. When Jesus died and rose again, that was the sign, that was the hour that Jesus continues to refer to, talk about, that reflects uh, the birth of this everlasting joy that is available for our lives. At the cross, his last words were, it is finished. Meaning this grief and mourning and sin and brokenness and death, it is finished. And what Jesus offers us is a joy. And that sign, and through Lent, may we recognize it being nothing else but the cross. And I love in John chapter 2, verse 10, the, the MC, the master of the banquet, says, uh, everyone brings out choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine uh, after the guests have had too much to drink but you have to save the best till now. This word choice wine, 
There's this Greek word, kalos. And many of us may have heard this kalos before because it's become kind of a popular word to name things. But this idea of choice, another word for that is good, it's right. But the main definition for, for choice or for good, whatever translation you have in the Greek, is this word beautiful. Beautiful. But you have brought the most beautiful wine. You have brought the most beautiful thing to this most shameful or almost shameful party of the year. <clears throat> you have brought hope. You have brought joy into this place of desperation and brokenness. And, and I love this message of beauty because wherever there is what we would deem as ugly in our lives, God offers us beauty. And so may we stop searching for beauty in the things that will only let us down. Remember, may we, may we, may we stop searching for joy and beauty in the things that only make us happy. Happy is so overrated. Let's not pursue happiness. A lot of us, we want to talk about happiness. Happiness is so overrated. It's so temporal, and it's so contingent upon outside circumstances. And what Jesus is saying is, I offer you something so beautiful. It is something more beautiful than things that are temporary. It comes from the source of God, which is constant and forever. And the sign of that is the cross. And so will you pursue joy? And will we know that joy can only come through the cross of Jesus? And we pursue a callous life. And so as I invite the band back up, I want us to take a moment to just reflect on the ways that we define what beauty is. A.K.A. I want us to define what it, how we in our lives have been pointed to the wrong signs to pursue joy. And, and these signs of us running after those signs of joy is so exhausting, isn't it? Because we know that once we get to that, whatever that sign was to joy, that carrot, things change. And all of a sudden we're left empty and dissatisfied and hurt and lonely again. And so may we pursue something that can only come from God, the creator, the most powerful, the most redemptive being that has ever walked the planet. May we pursue that to experience true joy that will be with us, that will never go empty. And at the woman at the well, with the woman at the well with Jesus, Jesus says, I offer you water. I offer you something that will never run out. Jesus offers us that water, really that wine, that joy in our lives because of the cross. May we pursue that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the joy, the forever, eternal, constant joy that you offer to us no matter what we go through in our own lives. And so may we pursue that and only that. May we name the things that are false sense of joy that only bring us happiness. May we name that. And though some of those may be good things in our lives, may we proclaim that not to be the end all, 
but our final destination being our pursuit of joy that can only come from you. And so I pray for all my friends and myself that are going through a time of despair, of a lack of joy. May we find hope that you have abundance, you have enough, you have plenty of joy that may overflow in our lives and our hearts. We thank you for that. May we receive that. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's continue in worship.